Friends, let's open in our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel 17, you'll remember that this is the story of David and Goliath, which John preached last week, and we're going to pick up where John left off, and we're going to take some of these themes that that John brought out for us, and we're going to dig a little deeper, but we're going to do that in an unusual way, because all I'm going to read for us is half a verse. We're going to study half of a verse of 1 Samuel 17, and you can memorize this, you can put it in your cubicle, you can make this a life verse, because I think there's much here for us to learn and apply. 1 Samuel 17:54a. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you take this word and bury it in our hearts, Lord? Would you use it to change us, to allow us to reimagine a world that you are recreating in the image of your son Jesus? You will do this and we will see the consummation of all things. So allow us to attend to this this morning with hope. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Well, one of the advantages of doing the worship the way we do it is we ask that our kids who are one through five, we have a ministry for them downstairs, but kids that are six and up, we invite them to worship with us. And there's many reasons we do that, but we love to have our little kids with us for one reason, and that is it allows the parents to debrief the sermon when we get home. Last week we came, we heard the story of David and Goliath, and I think I understood all the elements of the sermon, and then I get around the dinner table with my six-year-old and eight-year-old who were there, and my two-year-old and four-year-old who weren't there, and we try to retell the story and recapture everything, and I realized that that's harder than it first seems, that you've got to work to put these words into a way that a six-year-old can understand it. Well, we're, we're telling the story at the dinner table, and our four-year-old and, and two-year-old who joined us six months ago have probably never, ever heard the story of David and Goliath, so it's worth retelling, and it's a fun story to retell. We've got Daddy's cup, who's Goliath, and the little plastic cup that's David, and we call out the lines of each guy, and Daddy's standing up on the bench to show what a giant could look like in the dining room, and we're having a blast with this thing. Our kids took particular interest in a sling that could sh- throw a rock and sink into the forehead of the Philistine. We all wanted to know what that looked like, what that sounded like, what that looked like afterwards when he fell face first. There was a bunch of interest in that point. Well, we tell the story. We have a great time. I'm starting to clean up the dishes, and I overhear our four-year-old Gabriel lean over to Julie and ask one point of clarification, and that is, when was it that daddy killed the giant? (laughs) This whole time we're talking about David and Goliath and my name is David and Gabriel is picturing me squaring off with Goliath, which is awesome. And I thought to myself, I mean, what's the hurry to tell him this now? He's gonna gonna learn it in Sunday school eventually. Let's just let this ride. Um, Because all of us want to be the David in this story. All of us want to be David in these early years when he can do no wrong. David is a man after God's own heart. And what he does, we want to do, and we want to be like David. But John pointed out, as he preached through this important passage, that the thrust of the text, this text does not compel us to be a David, but to remind us of our need of a David. That's how this text works primarily. In other words, we don't read ourselves into this text as little Davids who are seeking to face the Goliaths in our week. I'm not up against thinking primarily of a bully on the playground or a tough boss or a cleaning project that I have to do and I'm the David and that's the Goliath and we're going to slay this thing. 
Instead, the thrust of this text is to remind us, I need a champion in my stead. I need a David. I need to be reminded that a David will stand and fight for me. David himself says these very words in our text, the Lord will deliver me for the battle is the Lord's. There's a sense in which David needs a David. David needs someone who will fight in his stead for him. Now, I chose a very unusual portion of this chapter to take some themes further. And I had read this, you know, dozens of times and never caught this until John pointed this out to me. But in verse 54, David, after he's done this battle, he chops off the head of Goliath and he takes it to Jerusalem. But Jerusalem which will become so connected to David. I mean, Jerusalem will become the capital of Israel. It will be dubbed the city of David. It will go hand in hand. You'll think about one and the same when you think about David and his rule and Jerusalem. But this is actually the only time the city of Jerusalem is mentioned in 1 Samuel. And the reason is because Israel is not in possession of it. Israel doesn't have Jerusalem right now. It's not the capital. In fact, it is owned and defended by the Jebusites. And Israel has been at war with the Jebusites all through the judges period. And so you have this very curious scene of David bringing the crushed head of a giant to an enemy city. Why does David do that? Why is he bringing this head to Jerusalem and what's his point? Well, I am so glad you asked that question. I think that's a very important question. I'm glad you asked. And the only way to answer that question is to take a step back, to take a step way back and to do something what John talked about last week. He gave us that million dollar phrase to look at an intercanonical echo. That is when we read the 66 books of the Bible, the canon, we listen for echoes that happen throughout scripture. And all of a sudden, when you see this teeny tiny portion of a verse, it begins to play echoes backward and echoes forward. So we see the span of what God is doing. Now to see those themes, to see those echoes, I just want to take both parts of this verse. And I want to understand where the Bible has brought us and where it's going with respect to a crushed head and to Jerusalem. A crushed head and a new Jerusalem. Number one, let's talk about a crushed head. Now, some of you have read your Bibles cover to cover. It's a thousand pages. It's no small feat. You could summarize the entire Bible in four words. Maybe you've heard other people use these words before, but as you're trying to place yourself where you are in the story of the Bible, four words describe and summarize the movements of the Bible, and they are these. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. That summarizes the entire story of the Bible. Creation, a perfect God makes a perfect world. Fall, Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God. They sinned and they broke fellowship with God and that broke this world and invited sin and death and shame into it. But from the very beginning, God plans his redemption that he is going to save us and he's going to do that through his son Jesus. And finally, we arrive at consummation, which means God will bring this entire story to a close and he will make all things new. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Every single chapter of the Bible, every scene, every character, every person, every verse 
either looks backward to this perfect creation, it looks presently to the effect of the fall of sin and death and shame in our lives, it looks more deeply into redemption and what God is doing through Jesus, or it looks forward to consummation. Every part of our Bibles highlights one or more of those themes. It gives us a way of understanding our entire Bibles. What's fascinating about that story is the presence of Satan from the very beginning of the story of what God is going to do in the world. We've read our Bibles. We understand that Genesis 1 and 2 is that that chapter of creation, that we understand God makes the world perfectly. But in chapter 3, where we hear about the fall, Satan is introduced. He's a serpent. He deceives Eve, and she in turn gives the fruit to her husband, and they fall, and sin enters the world, and we have a broken fellowship with God. But very soon after that, right after the fall, we have the very first preaching of the gospel, the plan of redemption that God is going to bring in Genesis 3, verse 15, which is a passage that all of us should know well. And that is God speaking to Satan, in essence, preaching the gospel to Satan, in which he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, your offspring and her offspring. You shall bruise his heel but he shall bruise your head. Now that's very cryptic. I mean, that happens right after the creation and fall scene. And so even though that's the seed of redemption, we don't exactly get what's being talked about there until many, many years later. But essentially God is saying, Satan, we are at war. We're going to do battle. And an offspring of the woman is coming. And when he comes, you're going to hurt him. You're going to do damage to him. You're going to bruise him on the heel, but he will crush you. He will bruise your head and he will destroy you once and for all. The story of redemption gets intertwined with the story of Satan in the world. Now it's important to remember that Satan is not our greatest enemy. Sin is. Our own sin and the penalty of death that it brings. So even if Satan were not in this story, we would still be separated from God because of our own sin. But Satan has a very key role. He's our deceiver and our accuser. He deceives us into more sin. He accuses us of the sin that we have. And because of that, the story of redemption, this third word that describes the Bible, the story of redemption and salvation is a story about the defeat of Satan. That comes up everywhere in our Bibles. 1 John 3.8, the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Colossians 2.15 says that Jesus on the cross disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. By extension, we as the church enjoy the fruit of that victory. Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Destroying, disarming, crushing, bruising, All of these pieces are part and parcel of the salvation that God will bring us. We'll fast forward from Genesis 3 to 1 Samuel 17 and enter this hulking giant Goliath. He stands nine feet, nine inches tall. Probably he wears 126 pounds of scaled body armor. Because it's scaled, he probably looks like a serpent. He's got a bronze helmet and he's got shin guards. He's got a sword. He's got a spear. The point of the spear is 15 pounds of iron. And in front of him walks an armor bearer who carries a full length body shield. 
In other words, this guy is invincible. There's nothing you can do. There's no way to attack him. There's no way to swing a sword or thrust a spear in which you can get at him because he is fully armored. But worse than all of that, worse than his imposing stature and the defense that he has is his role in the life of Israel. Because our text says in verse 16 that morning and evening for 40 days, Goliath comes out and mocks the people of God. They're gathered at the Valley of Elah. The Philistines are at one side and the Israelites are at the other side. And Goliath comes out as the champion of the Philistines and he stands in open ground. And for 40 days, morning and evening, he mocks the people of God and he blasphemes the living God, Yahweh. Where is God? What is he going to do? I stand here and I defy you. It's like an inverse of Spurgeon's devotions. Morning and evening you wake up and you hear blasphemy and you hear God being vilified before your very eyes. Even Saul, when he was first introduced to us, he's the king of Israel, he was introduced as being a head taller than everybody else. He's kind of a mini giant in his own right, and we know that he has body armor because he gives it to David. Saul is not willing to stand out and face this giant. Everyone is frozen in fear and doubt and cowardice, and they are reminded of that fear every single day. What would that have been like to be an Israelite standing on one side of the valley of Elah and looking out at this champion Goliath and being terrified of him and wondering what it is that God wants you to do? Frozen in fear day after day after day for your lack of faith. John tells a fantastic story that you'll have to get him to tell someday. But as a new believer, he joined a very charismatic mission that um, they were preparing to go overseas to do a short-term missions trip. And so they would do some field exercises and some team building stuff together. And at one point, one of the teammates, he broke his leg. He was doing something, broke his leg. They carried him back to the room and the team leader got together and he said, no problem. We're going to pray that God heals this leg. We're going to lay hands on this brother. We're going to pray and God's going to heal. So they all get around him and they start praying and praying and praying. And the team leader at one point is like, all right, let's test this out. Get up and try to walk on your leg. So the poor dude gets up and just kind of crumples over on his broken leg. And the team leader, he's getting a little incensed at this point. And so he looks around and he says, I know that God would heal this man right now but somebody in this room does not have faith. (laughs) Now, if you were John as a new believer, you would be thinking what everybody else in that room is thinking, and that is, that person is me. Like, if we're sizing up faith in this room, it is me who lacks faith. The team leader goes on to say, God has told me that if someone will sacrifice their life, this leg will be healed. (laughs) Well, nobody came forward to offer their life. The leg wasn't healed, and he just went on the mission strip with a broken leg. But this is kind of how I picture the people of Israel standing on the Valley of Eli. It's like if someone would just step forward and face Goliath, we could be done with this. Even if you lose, just get out there and go because 40 days, day and night, all we hear is this and all the people think within themselves is, it's me. God would use me, but I'm too afraid to move forward. I don't have the faith to do this. And David, when he arrives and starts asking questions, He puts his finger exactly on this. Look at verse 26. He says, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? 
When David sees the scene, what he sees is reproach. Israel stands condemned and accused and reproached. And who can possibly take that reproach away? Well, the Lord does. While Israel stands frozen in fear and cowardice, unable to move, unable to face the giant, out comes one who is filled with the Holy Spirit, David, who sprints down the side of the valley, swinging his sling. Now, all of us understand that this is not the Dennis and the Menace, uh, you know, pitchfork kind of slingshot. This is a leather sling that can take a tennis ball-sized rock and throw it 150 miles per hour. This is no joke. The fastest pitcher in Major League Baseball is pitching today, Araldos Chapman. He threw a fastball that is 105 miles per hour. That's slow motion for what this sling is going to do. David comes down this valley. He posts up before Goliath even gets into his position in battle. He throws off this blur of a shot, and it hits Goliath in the only place he doesn't have armor, in his face. And the text says that the rock sunk into his forehead. I don't want to get too graphic here, but foreheads are not made out of quicksand. Sinking is breaking, and the face of Goliath is crushed. His head is absolutely crushed. David chops it off and keeps it, and he takes away the reproach of Israel. Every single Israelite who is standing at the side of the Valley of Elah looking down at this entire scene, every single Israelite who is back at home tending to their families and to their flocks and supporting the war effort, not a single one of those people needed to be a David. They needed to be reminded of their need of a David, a champion who would stand in their stead and take away their reproach. When we see that scene, when we watch a head being crushed to take away the reproach of God's people, it can't help but sound off this echo that goes backwards to Genesis 3.15 and goes forward to 1 John 3 and reminds us of what Jesus is doing in our redemption and our salvation. Because even now, as Christians, we stand vilified by Satan. He maligns us, he accuses us, he deceives us, he disparages us, he slanders us, he condemns us where we stand. If he can take us to fear that a single one of our sins will be left unforgiven, if he can move in us to to fear that a single one of God's promises will be left unfulfilled, then Satan has won a victory. And he is working towards that victory morning and evening every single day. He's spoken to you this morning. It's not a single day that I step out of this pulpit, this music stand, and I think, I did a fantastic job. That was a wonderful sermon. God used me 100%. This is awesome. I'm always discouraged when I do that. Now, some people would argue that's your own insecurities that you bring up there in the first place. Some people would say, you know, that was something funny in your oatmeal. Some people would say, that's just Satan at work. And I would say, it's all three. But Satan is there in the midst of this, vilifying me and accusing me and maligning me and making me doubt everything that I thought was true is really true. If you had spent 40 days listening to Goliath morning and evening, you would have some bizarre theology. How much more for us as God's saints who hear the evil one day in and day out, Again and again and again and again. 
Because of that, I wish that every single person in this room would take Ephesians chapter 6 seriously. I wish every single one of us in this room understood that we have access to the armor of God, that we can put on this armor and we can face the evil one. This armor is made to extinguish the fiery arrows of Satan. I wish we had a morning practice of putting that on. I prayed that throughout the day we would just continue to remember that we have access to these things and to use them. I wish that was the practice of this entire church. I doubt that it is, and I doubt that that's true of my life. And because of that, there's something very important that we all need to hear about this story of redemption. If there is not a single day in our Christian life where we put on this breastplate and we take up this shield and we bear the sword of the Spirit, but instead we stand like an Israelite at the edge of the valley of Elah and we take every fiery dart of Satan dead in the chest, if that is true, that will make for a miserable Christian experience. It will be awful, but Jesus will win the victory. Jesus will win the victory and he's going to win it in spite of ourselves and our lack of faith and our lack of ability to meet the enemy on the battlefield. Jesus will win the victory. 1 Corinthians 15, 25, for he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. David and Goliath, the son of David and the serpent, heads will be crushed and Jesus will will win the victory. Friends, we move from a head to a Jerusalem. Verse 54 says, And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. And this is so odd. This would make sense if David were the king and Jerusalem were his capital, but David's not a king and Jerusalem's not his capital. This is enemy territory. This is the Jebusites. So what's David doing here? Why is he bringing the head to the Jebusite city of Jerusalem? Well, a lot of people debate about what he could be doing here. Some people think this is a peace offering. He's taking the head and he's bringing it to the Jebusites and he's saying, look, we have a shared enemy, the Philistines, and this is a peace offering. Uh, A shared enemy is dead. You know, some people think this might actually be an implicit threat. David takes the head of Goliath and he delivers it to the doorstep of Jerusalem and he says, look, this is what happens to the enemies of the people of Israel. Now we don't understand the details. Does David bring this inside the city? Does he know anybody there in which he delivers the head to? Or does he kind of just like secretively bring it to a neighborhood and bury it there? Does David, when he's 13 or 14 years old and not yet king, know the strategic importance of Jerusalem? And does he have a sense in his mind here in this chapter, that's the city I want to be my capital? What is going on? Why does he do it and how does he do this? There's a lot of debate about this, and I think that most of that debate doesn't really matter. Because David, whether he understands what he's doing or not, by delivering a crushed head to the doorstep of Jerusalem, creates an Ebenezer. It's a signpost that lands smack dab in the middle of this monarchy that reminds us that God will crush his enemy, and deliver us to a heavenly Jerusalem. God's going to do that, and this is a signpost that that's going to happen. 
Now, David, he's not going to conquer Jerusalem for another 10 or 20 years. It's not going to happen until 2 Samuel 5. But when he does, when he gains access to Jerusalem, when that's his capital, Jerusalem will be used synonymously with the entire nation of Israel. In the prophets, you can talk about Jerusalem and mean the people of Israel because those are understood as one and the same things. But immediately in the Old Testament, you get two Jerusalems. You get Jerusalem as she is and Jerusalem described as she ought to be. Those two Jerusalems appear again and again and again in the kings and the prophets. Here's Jerusalem, as in here's the people of God as she is, and here's the Jerusalem or the people of God as she ought to be. We see that everywhere. So in Zechariah 14, 16, we imagine the latter, Jerusalem as she ought to be, in which all the nations come. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts. That's not happening in Zechariah's time. That's an image of what will happen. The New Testament begins to collapse those two images together as one and the same thing so that the writer to the Hebrews can address you Christian today in Hebrews chapter 12, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God. You as a believer, you do that today. You have access to the heavenly Jerusalem today. That means that 1 Samuel 17, 54a is a teeny tiny signpost. This occurs 3,000 years ago that what began in a garden with a serpent is going to end in a city with a crushed head. That what began with a creation and a fall is going to end in redemption and consummation as God brings this new city to bear. Some of the very last words of our Bibles are these. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Let's pray together. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come and deliver us from the wiles of our enemy Satan and bring us to our heavenly city. We have access, we are counted among the citizens of that city, but we long to have this vision of the Apostle John to look up in the new heavens and the new earth and to see the heavenly Jerusalem descend to dwell there with you as your people. Would you encourage our hearts? Would you engage us in the battle we have still to fight? And would you lead us as an Ebenezer to this final home and resting place? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.